Thank you all so much for being with me today and thank you for this opportunity. So let me see a little bit uh, as we start this. One, um, I'm going to give you information. I'm going to give you a process that you can use to get off of a focus school status and move it. And I've used this process multiple times over the years. Uh, let me tell you one thing I'll say about it is this. Every time I do this, like just three years ago, I helped a little tiny school district in Texas, 150 kids, K-12. They went from an F to an A in three years. And the bottom line is it's hard to do when you only have 150 kids because one kid can ruin your whole uh, data system. But the bottom line is you can do it. I, I've done it with lots of school districts, but I'll tell you what happens every time after I do it. So some of you, if you don't care about anything else today, you know, this is how you get a promotion. Every time I've ever done this workshop and they change their test scores within three years, they have lost 80% of their administrators to other school districts. And many of the staff have been promoted because people want to know how to do it. So then within another three years, because of all the new people that come in, they tend to go back to where they were before. So I'm going to teach you this process. You can add it to your intellectual capital. I've used it with hundreds of districts. Um, and let me say a couple things about it as we start. I have ultimate respect for educators. And right now, especially uh, during COVID, so I'm going to give you information. You've got the expertise. You've got the intelligence. You can figure out which parts you want to use and which parts you don't. Well, I'm going to tell you the rules of the game. And so let me just say a little bit about my background in case you care. But I was a high school teacher for nine years. I student taught at middle school. I was an elementary principal, central office. For six years, I worked strictly on school improvement with over 100 school districts. I worked two years in Texas, four years in Illinois with state assessment uh, standards, how you help schools raise test scores. So I'm going to teach you a process um, and it will be your choice about how you go about using it. But let me just say a little bit about what we're going to do. I'm going to teach you the rules of the game. And one of the things that's been really unfortunate is that we have been given rules that are not the same rules that the referees are using. And the referee is your state government educational system and the feds. And feds hammer on states as much as states hammer on districts. So I want to explain to you how you begin to make sense of the rules. And using some data from your school, I want to show you one thing right away. This is what is online about your school, okay? You had 660 students in the 2018-2019 school year. But if you look at the bottom of this screen, you will see how many kids you had on free and reduced lunch. You had, as it says in the corner, directly certified. You had, I believe it is, 540 kids. La, let me say something about that. It's a high percentage of your population because I did the math on it. It's 80%. Here's the bottom line on it. 
you're held about accountable for those kids as one of your subgroups, but you're not allowed to know who they are. And I want to explain why, because of the Federal Privacy Rights Act. So here's a subgroup you're responsible for, give it to the feds, but you're not allowed to know who they are. So I want to start showing you how, given the rules of the game, how you can win, and you can, okay? But the rules and what we've been told they are, are, are different. So let me say a little bit about a, a brief history, if you don't mind. I call it Miss Peabody's History of Education. But I'm going to go through it really quickly because you will know why the, I'm making the recommendations I'm going to make to you. So I like to say, first of all, that if you start looking at Western education, not Chinese education, not um, uh, education before the Roman Empire, but if, if you start looking at Western, how it started, basically, one of the key issues was that until uh, the printing press in the 1400s, the only people who had really access to written texts were monks who copied them and sons of wealthy landowners or sons of royalty. Otherwise, people didn't get it. What changed the pattern was one of the things was the printing press. And that was came out of also one of the things that Black Plague did in Europe. It, this is a little interesting piece of arcane history. But a third of people died. So it concentrated the wealth in the hands of fewer people. So they had more money when the plague was over. And this printing press helped spur the written text. And it was spurred also by Martin Luther and his uh, nailing the 95 Thesis to the door of the Catholic Church saying, hey, you can be your own salvation. You can be your own advocate for with God. You don't have to go through a priest. That concept then, because of the printing press, got into more and more hands. And that started uh, the uh, revolution. In other words, hey, we don't need a king. We can govern ourselves. One of the most interesting, this is an aside, what happened during the Black Plague when people died, the underwear and clothes at that time were made out of linen and cotton. And when people died, they were put out on the, the porches or the outside of the building and often in buckets, pottery, et cetera, and it would rain and it would disintegrate it. Well, there was a printer who was trying to figure out how is it that we can take uh, printers at the cheaper source for printing material because animal skins were harder and harder to come by. And so somebody had poured one of these buckets out on the rocks. It had dried and he thought, hey, we can print on this. And that's how we got linen rag paper, just a little aside. But the bottom line is that as we got the development of paper, we got books, paperback books, smaller books. And so in the United States then, the first round of education in the 1600s was simply about being able to read the Bible, moral development, um, and it was catered to the children of the wealthy, uh, particularly the sons. And Harvard was established, and uh, about 100 years later, a female school. 17 and 1800s is when we switched from a religious orientation to schooling to a public one, a government one. And you can see how this actually kind of fell out. We had the first public school in the 1820s. Civil War was over. We had the first public schools for ex-slaves in the 1860s, civil rights. 
uh, public schools in every state. By 1870, the Depression closed many schools in 1873. And so for two or three years, it was over. Okay, let's get to the 1900s. We got school lunches. We got the Spanish flu. And by the way, if you look at the pandemic, it took about two years before the things went back to normal. Great Depression slowed it down. 1946, we got the school lunch program. And the reason we got that in part was because the research was that military, after World War I, they found out that they couldn't get a lot of people for the military because their food was inadequate as children. So that was one of the things that started the uh, public uh, lunches. Brown versus Board of Ed, where we got integration. 1950, um, 50% of Americans had a high school diploma and only about 5% of females and 7% of males actually had a college degree. Now, the reason I'm going this with you, I want to show you how we came to where we are now. What spurred our current development was Sputnik. What happened in 1957 is the Russians put a satellite into space before we did. That spurred it. But what it really did is spurred a round of research. Why were the Russians ahead of us educationally? Why were they able to do what we, we weren't able to do? And they commissioned the Coleman Report. James Coleman was at John Hopkins University. And he, they wanted to know, why is it that we are not competing with the Russians? And in the Coleman Report, came out and said, basically, children in poverty underperform, and that's why we're not competing and we're not producing enough scientists, okay? So what happened, that was the 1964 uh, Economic Opportunity Act, which was the war on poverty. We got civil rights legislation. We got the first educational law, ESEA. The reason I bring that to your attention is this. That law strictly prohibited a national curriculum. See, education is states' rights. That law prohibited. It becomes very important when we start talking about Common Core. And this James Coleman report then spurred an intense in interest in schools. Well, let's fast forward. Okay, One of the things that happened as a result of this report is that we had two researchers in Michigan. They read James Coleman's report and they said, we don't believe it. Because we know kids in inner city Detroit, Michigan, they're poor, they're learning. So it can't just be about the kids. And they started the effective schools research. That first research was so controversial that both of them lost their positions at the universities over it because people said it can't be true. And so they went on to form their own uh, small business but the, their own consulting. But the bottom line, it was very controversial. But the reason that becomes important is because that's the foundation of what schools are held accountable to. They define equity and excellence. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But one of the most interesting things that happened in this progression was that in 1972, what started the accountability movement in part, I heard the Undersecretary of Education speak, who had been the undersecretary of education then. And he had a mother come to him in 1972. And she said, look, she said, you are making me send my child to high school every day. I have no idea what he's learning. 
if he doesn't go, you put me in jail for truancy of his truancy, but you can't tell me why I should send him to school. You have no proof he's learning anything, but yet you hold me accountable if I don't send him. And that started then the whole accountability movement. Now, what had happened backing up in 1910, we passed the first child labor law in which you could not force children to work under the age of 18 or 14, maybe it was at that time. But the bottom line, that forced then huge numbers of children into public schools. And so the undersecretary of education in 1972, he thought, you know, this is really true. I can't guarantee anything. So that started the whole accountability movement. 1972 is a year when we have switched from an industrial economy to an intellectual economy, intellectual capital, where you started making money out of your head. That changed issues. And in 1975, we passed the first special ed law. Now, the reason we passed that first special ed law was that parents went to the legislature and said, you don't even let our children go to school. And you have denied them an opportunity to develop them as much as is possible. That law was pushed by parents who wanted their children the right to go to school. Because up until that time, if you had a disabled child, cognitively, physically, whatever, they basically didn't go to public schools. That then prompted the whole issue around how we schooled all children. Just as an aside, I need to say also that One of the big pushes to get children into public school actually happened in 1918 during that pandemic and right after it. A lot of immigrant children were kept out of public schools. And there was a nurse in New York City who changed that whole trajectory, one person. Now, in the effective schools research now, many of you know about it, Larry Lazat and Ron Admonds. Here's what they found made a difference in schools. Strong administrative leadership, high expectations, orderly atmosphere, basic skills acquisition, uh, frequent monitoring of students, and the ability to divert school energy and resources from other activities to advance that purpose. Now, the most important thing that came out of their research, in my opinion, is their definition of equity and excellence. That is the axis state education and the feds use to determine whether or not you are a focus school, a priority school, or you don't get their assistance. Equity means, regardless of the child's race, socioeconomic status, disability, they are performing well, as well as each other. Excellent means they're above the norm. That is the axis of, and one of the reasons your school is a focus school is because the subgroups are not performing equally. Now, I want to go on now and look at this a little bit. 2001, No Child Left Behind. That was a civil rights piece of legislation. And Ted Kennedy and George Bush got together and passed that law. And basically, it was to look at equal opportunity subgroups. But one of the things that happened in 1985, when Ronald Reagan was the president, George Will, who was a columnist, wrote, was very favorable to Reagan. And when Reagan got elected, he made Madeline Will, George Will's wife, undersecretary of education. Now, she had never been an educator. 
but they had a Down syndrome child. And so basically 10 years after the first special ed law was passed, she did a paper called the Regular Ed Initiative. And they concluded that special ed was separate and unequal. But what that paper, it became known as the Regular Ed Initiative, and that's when inclusion started. Now, I want to say something about this, okay? That paper also changed the purpose of special ed. The purpose of special ed for the first 10 years was to have the opportunity to develop as much as possible. This law changed it. The purpose of special ed was social inclusion, okay? And what happened then as a result of that, when we got from 1985 to 2001, when we got No Child Left Behind, No Child Left Behind changed the purpose of special ed again, okay? And it changed it to achievement and growth for special ed kids. So it was no longer enough. You had to show that they were actually showing growth. And then we got 2007 race to the top. Now, I want to say why we got race to the top. First of all, I need to tell you, we spent $7 billion on race to the top. Two months before the end of the Obama administration, the Federal Department of Education released the research on that project. And they found that race to the top made absolutely no difference in student achievement. But what I want to show you is why we got it and how we are where we are right now and how it is that you came to be a focused school. What happens here is this. This was a marriage of P16 and P20, race to the top. What happened was this. The Federal Reserve Board and the Chamber of Commerce in the late 1980s got together and said, we want to create a dual database. We want to create a workforce database, work history database, and a educational attainment database for every person in the United States. And one of the things that happened is in 1985, they required that every child when they were born got a social security number. And what P20 did was they were going to do a dual bit database and collect data so that they could go in communities and say, hey, you know, and they ran this through community colleges. Hey, you know, you, we have these many people with this workforce history, with this educational attainment level. If you change your course selection, what we can do is retool your community and have economic development. Well, the most interesting thing about that was that they, there was no uniform curriculum. And the ESEA law prohibited it. And all states were testing differently. So what happened in Race to the Top was this. Because there were no common assessments, there's a group called the Education Commission Clearinghouse of the States, and it's in Denver, Colorado. Part of the Race to the Top money went to every legislature. And every legislature, the clearinghouse, went to each legislature and said, hey, if you give us a portion of your money, we will create a common core curriculum. Well, two states did not buy into that, Texas and Alaska. And it was heavily funded by the Bill Gates Foundation. 
And what happened is the Education Commission of the States put together a committee to develop Common Core, but there were no educators on at K-12, except one who was a special ed specialist, okay? So Common Core was put together by people who were not educators K-12, okay? What happened then is to have a uniform curriculum, they decided they needed to have uniform assessments. So they said school, states could choose Park or Smarter Balance. What happened was that both of these were developed by Pearson. Well, here's what killed it. Arnie Duncan, then Education Secretary, and the reason I'm showing you this is to show you the marriage between politics and education, and it's constantly there, and economic development, okay? It is about learning, but secondarily, okay? It's about driving an agenda, okay? What happened was this. Arnie Duncan said at a public meeting, he said, because there was so much pushback against standardized assessments, and because there was a breach of private data in Massachusetts by Pearson, what happened was that he made a statement in public that the only people who are really upset about state assessments were white suburban mothers who were finding out that their children were not as smart as they thought they were. Well, as a result of that, the AFT, the PTO, and the Tea Party got together and they decided to kill Common Core politically, which they basically did. So many states went back and said, we're going to do our own version. So there's a lot of Common Core in assessment, but a lot of it's not in there as well. Pearson couldn't deliver on their time frame to develop tests, so other people stepped in, and parents withheld their children from testing. Where we got standardized tests, so just let me go back and explain this to you, and then you'll get a, a more complete picture. Standardized testing came actually out of the original research that Lewis Terman did in 1910 to identify giftedness. But where we really got standardized testing is with World War II when they developed multiple choice tests because what they wanted to do is figure out which pilots could fly the planes and which ones couldn't. So they did these multiple choice tests because they could do mass scoring. Lewis Terman figured out how you assess. And one of the things that Lewis Terman did is he identified the IQ scale. Now, I'm just saying a little bit about, we're not going to talk a lot about testing this time. I'm going to give you more data about that so you know how to analyze your items, okay, more accurately. But standard deviation is the basis of IQ. He said 100 IQ is norm. If you fall one standard deviation either way, 85 to 115 in IQ, 68% of the population falls in there. Two standard deviations either way is 95% of the population. So with your IB program that you have in your building, and many of your kids are beyond two standard deviations in that program. So it goes anywhere from under 70 is basically what we consider special education cognitively. Over 135 is basically what 130 is what we consider gifted. But you know that you only have two and a half percent of population at either end of this. This bell-shaped curve, this IQ distribution, 
is this standard deviation is the basis of how your state figures out accountability. And I want to explain that in a minute, okay? But this distribution then, the idea that you could standardize distribution then drove state assessment. And because of that then, after the military, they took those tests into public schools. And your state assessment was developed by a guy who was involved with the military in that initial testing, okay? NAEP then was the government's attempt to dipstick. So what National Assessment of Educational Progress does is it across the United States dipsticks kids every year. So every year in every state, they take, you know, three or 4,000 third graders, three or 4,000 fifth graders, whatever, and they dipstick. How are you going to do on NAEP? Because they're trying to do a national kind of assessment of patterns. And then in 1994, the Fed said every state has to have their own estate assessment. And so you need to know that basically there's three main testing companies and one scoring company, and Pearson is a scoring company. And when I talk more about how you get your assessments, I'll explain this in more detail. But the reason I bring it up is this. It's a pretty little group of people that determine how you get assessed uh, and tested. Now, where are we now? Well, 2015, we went to ESSA, Every Student Succeeds. And what basically they did is they gave the control of education back to the states. The feds had really taken it away during Race to the Top. It's back to the states now. But the feds said, if you want money from us, then you have to do these things. You have to have some sort of assessment. You have to uh, begin to look at your high school graduation rates. You've got to look at your subgroups. And we want to know that data. Otherwise, we won't give you federal funding. Now, what's happening now is that Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, and Apple have put in almost $2 billion into a fund to create personalized learning. What they want to do is be the primary deliverer of education. And one of the things we've learned during COVID is that if there aren't human bodies involved, it basically doesn't work very well. So where does that put us now? Okay. And what does that mean for you? Okay. Well, you're a focus school, okay? And you have three years to address it. 80% are on free or reduced lunch. As you look at your scores again, I want to show you what's on your web, what's on the web about you, okay? And you may know these. What does this mean and why am I showing it to you? Because these charts only tell you about achievement. They're not really the reason you're a focus school, okay? If you go online, you're a focus school because of subgroups. So I want to show you now, if you don't mind, the difference between achievement and accountability. And I want to use a basketball analogy. 